0: Welcome to Wisdom and Wonder, discussing the things you wonder about with curiosity and an open mind. I'm your host, Ann Jan, and this week we had a fascinating discussion on AI with Redeemer faculty and a computer scientist working at OpenAI. Enjoy this episode. Okay, so now onto our panelists. Uh, our first panelist is Redeemer Philosophy Professor Dr. Barkman. Um, His role on the panel is to help us grapple with the ethics of using artificial intelligence um, from a philosophical viewpoint. Uh, Our second panelist is Redeemer's uh, business professor, Dr. Asatrian, and his role is to give us some evidence on how AI is being used in the business world, as well as how he personally is incorporating AI into uh, teaching his business students and then Um, more education more broadly. And our final panelist is Dr. Braden Eastman. He um, is joining us from San Francisco. Uh, He is an alumni of Redeemer and he is a researcher and developer at uh, OpenAI. He has been on the cutting edge of AI development and he works at one of the few companies he feels are ethically using AI. His addition to the panel is basically to shed light on the val- the valuable uses as well as to explain to us some of the inner workings of how AI even works. So that is his role. And um, I thank you all for joining us today. Um, so to jump right in, my very first question will be to uh, Dr. Eastman. Um, can you explain the essential principles behind generative AI and how it generates content, data, essentially, how does it work?
1: Yeah, so I think uh like AI is a very big field. It includes a yeah. lot of things. It's been it's old, it's at least you know 50, 60 years old now. Um, but when most people nowadays are talking about AI, they're they're people who've only really been uh maybe inoculated to the the conversation within the last year or so, largely due to things like ChatGPT and other things kind of. Uh, gaining some uh, popularity or, or public attention. And so within AI in general, there's large language models which do generative work a little bit differently than some of the other things. So like image models do it slightly differently than language models. Um, but effectively, language model training for generative purposes is like a two-stage process. The first stage is analogous, or it's it's intended to be analogous to the way that humans acquire language. And so it's it's meant to be like babbling. And so in the first stage of training one of these generative networks, you, uh, you present it with a large amount of data and then like just text stuff, usually scraped from high quality sources, like books or Wikipedia or whatever. And then you take those, uh, those big long strings of text and you just start blanking out words and just teach the model to be a fill in the blank machine. And so that's the, the first stage of doing it. And, and in that process, the model is acquiring some skills, it's acquiring uh, the capacity to produce plausible text. Um, That is, I think, probably the most easiest part of generative AI to understand. But I think one of the largest or most common, I think, sort of fallacious interpretations of how it works is that most people just stop there. Um, But that that process of just doing the the self-supervised learning step or the pre-training step of just doing the language acquisition, that's interesting, but it's not the full story. the really interesting stuff happens afterwards, in my opinion, and that's where we do the uh, the alignment stage. So that's trying to make a model that's not just a fill in the blanks machine, but can actually hold a conversation, can talk back and forth with with you, and also knows has some capacity to uh, to not produce text that is deemed, you know unsafe or something like this. Uh, so the base model, like the the self-supervised model, if you know how to prompt it, you can't just talk to it like, like you can't chat. You have to be very particular in how to prompt it. But if you know how to prompt it, you can get it to explain to you how to make a bomb out of anything you can buy at home hardware. It's very easy. Um, but the the point of doing the fine tuning or the alignment step is to, uh, to end up with a model that you can put in front of the public and not be concerned about a bunch of people going out making bombs because it knows to to decline things that are unsafe or whatever, or it's been tuned to human preferences. And that alignment aspect of tuning it to human preferences typically involves uh, gathering a lot of human data, and so that's that's something like showing humans conversations, showing them different messages, asking them to you know rank them, what's their favorite, and type up a, a potentially a different message, and then using that kind of human annotated data to uh, to train the model to uh, reflect the preferences that humans uh, instill in it. I think probably the most like one of the other big kind of fallacious interpretations I see people uh, making is especially people who are from a non technical background who interact with ChatGPT is they think the model is learning or they think the model's remembering or they think it's being trained on the stuff that they're typing in. The model is static, like all all models are is matrix multiplication. Um, there's classes on linear algebra at Redeemer, if you want to learn more about how that works, but all, all they are is just math, right? And, and once the numbers are fixed during that training process, they're fixed. And that training process is outrageously expensive. Uh, so GPT-4, our most recent one costs on the order of hundreds of millions of dollars to train. Um, and so we don't train it on some random persons, uh, trying to talk to it about how to do their homework or whatever like that's not high quality we're not going to train on that that's it's an expensive process uh and and yeah the model is very rarely updated and so the people often are like oh I, I was talking to it about XYZ yesterday and then today it, w- it was remembering those things it's like no it's not you're just it, you're falling for uh you're seeing patterns that don't exist
0: okay um thank you so much the next question we have is for starting well anyone can jump into this question but starting with Dr. Barkman. um How would you say artificial intelligence differs from human intelligence? How would you make that distinction?
2: Uh, Well, I mean, I can talk about human intelligence, I suppose, and then uh, others can correct me if I've got this wrong with AI. The classic distinction between human intelligence um, philosophically and animal intelligence generally is the ability to self reflect to what we can say correctly, know or understand as opposed to merely uh, uh, act on instinct or have a kind of memory. So for example, uh, the ability to say, I am now thinking when I'm doing something would be a a kind of hallmark of what we might call rational intelligence or human intelligence. Um, And something like that might be shared by, at least in theology, something like the angels or God or otherwise. So self-reflection and being aware that you're a thinking thing, as Descartes says. I think that's something that um, humans seem to be able to do, at least if I'm a, a reading myself correctly. Um, I think we can do that. I, I have not seen um, any plausible arguments that that's what machines could do, for example, no matter how charming they might be or otherwise, uh, nor even the higher animals like elephants or dolphins or so on. We don't have any good reason to think that they're doing that sort of thing. So, I think self reflection is one thing, um, and being aware that you are now thinking. Uh, the sorts of awareness that we have, I mean, you know, animals, for example, classically um, are creatures um, that are susceptible to change and flux. And uh, if you remember your Plato, some of you might remember your Plato, um, as things of the physical world entirely, they wouldn't be able to discern unchanging things. Um, what Plato called the ADOS or otherwise, so triangularity or, or certain types of uh, equations that would always be fixed or moral laws that would be always true. Um, changeable things entirely couldn't couldn't hold on to those things. Um, so we wouldn't expect animals to know moral principles. And when we call an animal bad, we, we don't really mean that they're morally bad. We can just say we don't like that they're done. Um, when it comes to machines of course they are also changeable things they're still physical things entirely right they're, they're machines made by man they come into existence at a point um, electricity is a physical thing um, we shouldn't expect i think using the platonic argument to say that they would know or be aware of unchanging truths um, they certainly could replicate or or give us perfect math in ways that one of us could do but being aware of unchanging stuff, I think would be, again, uh, something we wouldn't expect to to, to know. Um, and then of course with that are the most important principles that we have, which are moral principles. So, I wouldn't say that, uh, I, I don't think it's controversial, to say um, artificial intelligence is
1: moral uh, or immoral, so it's non-moral, I think would be a better way to think of it. Probably the only thing that I'd add is, is yeah, I largely agree. Um, Animals mostly act on instinct, and today's models also largely act on instinct. Uh, I do think that the capacity to have models with things like internal monologues, things like self-reflection, uh, does not strike me as an impossibility, and there's rudimentary evidence that uh, that such things are possible, uh, but I, I also still don't think that acquiring such a skill uh, would elevate the the intelligence to to something of the level of human intelligence. I think there's a lot of uh just because you can get to metacognition doesn't necessarily bring you, I think, to to the full level of intelligence that we have. I think especially it's uh incredibly hard for me to believe without a without some kind of large paradigm shift that we could ever end up with models that have any degree of emotional intelligence or social intelligence that's not just some smoke and mirrors facade like like the way it currently is. And to me, that's like the more important distinction between, I think, the the kind of intelligence that we can make these machines do and the kind of intelligence that uh, that all of us wield sort of unthinkingly.
2: Yeah, and that's actually interesting. Like, you know, the rational model is the classic model that the philosophers give. But one of the things that, you know, I want to talk about later on is the, the concept of virtue as a kind of uh, passion that we need to train or otherwise, and what would be one of the distinguishing features between humans and machines, for example, that might tie into what Brian is saying as
0: This is a question that was uh, given from the audience. Um, how do you think AI will be regulated in the future? And the follow-up question to that is, what oversight is necessary to restrict the power of biasing AI according to I guess the company or a person, the a trainers' individual ideologies or ideas.
1: Just to clarify, a trainer—you mean like like people like me, people training models, right? Yeah, sure. All right. We we use the term slightly differently in the field, that's why I want to check. Um, I'm not sure how it will be regulated in the future. Uh, I have strong opinions on how I think it ought to be regulated in the future, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how. Like, yeah, predicting social things has never been my strong suit. Um, so I. I think that it is entirely reasonable to suggest that uh, at the government level that things should be restricted to the level of uh, like at, at sort of a nation level past a certain degree of capability um, and coming up with a, a shared metric for what we mean by capability is doesn't is, is not a, a trivial uh, problem but I think there are kind of like analogs that we can start using today I think there's a lot of parallels between uh, AI development and and the restrictions that are going to need to happen on it and things like uh, nuclear power development or or nuclear technology development in general and the sort of restrictions that are placed at an international level uh, among those things. Uh, I I really don't love the idea of any one company being the kind of like forever company, even if it's a company that I I more or less align with. I just think in general, there should be uh, multiple competing sort of, uh, approaches and competing products. And and that there's a certain amount of, uh, safety that comes out of diversity and, and kind of a decentralized approach. And, and to that end, I really do think that the regulation has to, has to thread that needle very carefully, because if you just start regulating. AI training runs, large model training runs, then all you're going to do is make it a lot easier for companies like, like my company to stay in the lead. Uh, you have to ensure that, that the, the regulation happens at some level that's that's sufficiently powerful. So things like, like GPT-4 or more powerful right, is kind of where I think the line should be drawn. And that if you're training models at that level or more, you are making a political statement in that training process. And, and those models are incredibly powerful and ought to be, ought to be regulated in, to some degree. And, and at the very least, uh, nations should be aware of, of which individuals uh, within their borders actually possess these powerful models. Probably chime in I
2: a bit on mean, that. I agree with you, Biden. Right? And, and when I look at this from uh, an economist's point of view, in a sense, not necessarily from a government point of view, to this, I think you alluded in particular to the I guess, technological or technical regulations, uh, which I, I do agree are very important to perhaps define the contours or the guideposts, if you will, of how far and how wide technology can be implemented for for me as an economist a business person is the regulation question at different levels one is at the personal employee conduct level the other one is at the perhaps organizational level um and the i guess the third one is more about nation and then a global economic well-being regulation if you will i mean it's a powerful tool that is going to be a, a significant, well, the most perhaps significant disruptor, if you will, to the way we conduct business, to the way that we compete, in a sense, and provides an, a, to some might seem a very unfair comparative advantage to the powerful companies who so do have the money to utilize them. Uh, it, it is a significant sort of leap, if, if you will, the way my experience has been, what I read on the business literature. So I think. If we think about this three-four level tier kind of regulation, uh, what are the societal norms and so on, like a guide, for example, uh, or policies even within the corporation, within the organization that define the use of this technology, What is it can be used for? And we'll get back to this in a bit of when we talk about education. So, what are what are the rules of conduct for, conduct for employees? What are the rules of conduct or limitations, policies, and so on of the use of this technology, transparency, and so on and so forth at the corporate level, like at the business level. The entire organization has subscription to GPT to other things. What are the regulations, if you will? Not necessarily governmental regulations, sort of business code of ethics, code of conduct kind of regulations. And I, th- I think perhaps the most important question, I would say, at this stage, is how to, how governments in a sense come up with policies that uh, well, for lack of a better word, protect the potential huge disruptions, displacements of workforce and all that as a result of this technologies coming. And uh, we will talk more about where the potential sort of challenges are in a sense. Yeah, no, the more interesting question is the one that uh, Dr. Eastman raised, which is not how will it look in the future, which is, is is cool sci-fi, but the question is, should it be regulated? And then why should it be regulated? right? sort of the ethical question, I think, is a more interesting one. But that requires knowing ethics and knowing about the powers of AI, right? And, and it's difficult sometimes to get those two persons in the same room and, and work through those two issues carefully and well. Uh, might be part of the challenge, but it's a challenge of any ethics of anything specific to medicine. Okay.
0: So this next question uh, is going to relate back to um, the question about education. So uh, Dr. Asatjian, uh, how do you see AI impacting people's education? So in terms of like, I, I'm specifically gonna limit it to higher education because I feel like, you know, we, it, it could really be an impactor in the other levels as well, but we'll just talk higher because that's where we are right now. So yeah, how do you how do you foresee that? Or what are you already seeing?
2: So I've uh, spent quite a bit of time this past summer and the last few months actually as so reflecting on that, experimenting, uh, working with Chad, GPT, um, account and so on and looking at it so from a, perspective of an educator, and from a perspective of a business person. So understanding what is going on in the world of business, because this is the the world for which we prepare our students for, and uh, how we do it in the four or five years that the students have um, are with us is going to impact uh, the pedagogy, the different methods, and who the student and the professor. So in that context, I, I looked at the, the capabilities of the tool and um, what it can and cannot do, both for the educator and for um, the student. And it's a very powerful tool, there's no question about it. Uh, the world of business is using it very actively. Uh, most webinars seminars have been to this incredible tool to generate reports, to analyze data create imagery, um, a lot of stuff, can be generated reasonably well. With the prompt of um, the chat GPT, and also like Dali and others, creating imagery and so on. So then my reflection was over the summer is that, okay, if this is the way the world is operating, the business world is operating now, how do I prepare students for that world that uses this tool at this point openly? Um, without much restriction and so on. And what kind of educational experience needs to, uh, to create for students to, to prepare them for that. Now that doesn't mean that every assignment in a sense needs to be inclusive of this technology. But I think thinking at the very sort of where the rubber is the road level has been very helpful to me to think about how specific assignments need to be original. So I think Thinking about uh, and reflecting in in the people that are preparing for this conference in a couple of months about the areas in which number one, how can ChatGPT or artificial intelligence spark students' creativity in the branding world? Someone come up and someone to create branding strategies gadgets, jingles, all kinds of things. So how can we help students use this technology, thinking about how, what, how to boost their creativity. Um, other areas are of, in terms of the critical thinking. I think this is a very critical aspect of education. How do we encourage students with or without the presence of, of this powerful tool to critically think about or reflect on Their own learning and understand their own limitations, but also limitations of the other. That's how I get uh, more advice, for studies, but I'll just pause here. This is a line which has been used to try to just understand what the world is requiring, for our students, where our students are, and how we help them. Which they well the profession well, in ourselves struggling with OK, Thank you. Do you, either of
0: you have anything to add to that in terms of Dr. Arkin or? A question yeah, how do we how do you see AI impacting like like I guess we're going to talk about higher education.
2: Yeah. I, again, I am interested in how should it rather than how it because I'm not a I'm not profit as well <laughs> about these things. The question, if we want to write, if we want to achieve the right conclusion, we need to ask the right question at the outset, which is what's the purpose of education primarily and then secondarily. Um, I'm of the opinion that education is primarily to help us become more human or to flourish in our humanity um, or to achieve what God wants us to achieve as as rational creatures. Um, And so education is helping us to flourish and grow and develop in all of these ways that makes us this kind of creature specifically. And if uh, a tool will help us to do that, that's wonderful. If it hurts that, we need to be aware of that. So when it comes to AI, I mean, I'm sure there's ways that's beneficial, but there's also ways that it could also be um, it could stunt some of the developments or excellence. Um, one of the analogies I was thinking of when I was given this lecture in in Tokyo last year was talking to a bunch of uh, Buddhist students as well, and um, there's this practice in Japan, um, and it's it's a it's, it's a kind of spiritual practice, they call it, it's just the tea ceremony, where you sit around, and basically it's for the samurai, right? you sit around and you would hold your bowl in just the right place and with the right angle of hands, and you stir your tea in, and it was this um, dedication to the perfection of a specific activity, and through this practice and repetition, even of things that might seem mundane, you can develop a kind of um, a kind of appreciation for excellence, um uh, that you wouldn't achieve if you just do what i do when i make tea which is pour water into tea bag and go never mind the temperature of no all so there's there's a place i think in our world for going to importance to and to- getting some to throw a tea bag in the water when you want the, the caffeine boost booster the flavor and and that's sort of uh, uh we can outsource as opposed to uh, hands that throw a bag in there without what But there's also a place for developing excellence of doing particular activities that help to flourish students, like the T Center. And so there might be places where chat, uh, GPT, or others might help to speed along the process of research, and those can be hugely beneficial. Um, but to import that into all spaces might prevent the development of human excellence, which comes through slowly progressing through dusty old libraries and finding books and tracking down and tracing sources wow. by, by your own efforts and making manual outlines on pen and paper and, and then writing bad theses and, and bad introductory paragraphs and working and less things like in these ways. In so I think there's places for both but and I find my, my concerns only that we imagine that one should
0: entirely the right together. Okay, and does, do other of you have anything to add to that? to respond.
1: I think uh like with with a lot of these tools, a lot of these models, I think it's that that what Dr. Bartman's like saying is uh, I very much agree with that there, there are ways in which it can it can assist in education ways in which it can uh be a kind of like a, a tool that that you work alongside in education and there are also ways in which it can just uh, you can replace your critical thinking you can replace your your essay writing skills or, or your capacity to like arrange complicated arguments by just having the model do it and that's I think obviously uh not an ideal situation uh, but I also think that it's it, it it's something that is going to require a bit of a, a paradigm shift in in pedagogy and i think there's a lot of really interesting uh, parallels with with my own field uh, so yeah my phd is in math uh and in math like within the last 120 or so years things have gotten uh i think the the discipline had to reconcile with a bit of an identity crisis as uh, calculation just became a thing that people didn't do Calculation was an incredibly important aspect of of mathematics, and there are plenty of people who still think that you, uh, and I'm I'm one of them, who think that you cannot achieve a a true level of mathematical understanding without a base level of of, of skill in calculation. Uh, And so I think the discipline has largely kind of stuck the landing on on finding the right way to, to instruct that places the emphasis on the aspects that are fully human, the aspects that are things we can do that the computers can't. And that's usually in forms of like interpretation and stuff. And in my own teaching, I, I taught a course at, at Waterloo, the, the last course I taught that was a, a, a partial differential equations course, basically the exact same course as it was in the 80s. Uh, the book is slightly updated, but the content's mostly the same. Uh, and so I was talking with a prof who taught it in the 80s and, and we were sort of comparing notes and, and thinking how funny it was about the things that we taught differently. And, and mostly it's the emphasis the uh, he put a lot more emphasis on calculation skills. I put a lot more emphasis on interpretability. Because a computer can solve a PDE to far more, or far higher fidelity than any person can. But if you can't interpret that, then what's the point? Um, and, and kind of the, the theme or, or pulling on the vein of, of trying to, the tool is good if it helps make us more human. I think that that is largely true. And, and coming up with the correct incentives in, in pedagogy and in education so as to, uh, to bias students towards wanting to, to master these skills on their own there are plenty of con- like my uh, my classmates during undergrad and, and during my masters who just offloaded all their computation to the computer never thought about it those people plateaued kind of quickly um the the individuals who like did they tied one hand behind their back they made it a little bit harder for themselves at the beginning they got a lot further and and part of that is having uh things like in person exams where you weren't you didn't have access to to maple or your calculator or anything like this um and I think similar things are going to be helpful for ensuring that individuals are still f- forming creative writing skills, are still forming essay writing skills, are still capable of, of producing logical arguments about things, or, or uh, reading large pieces of text and being able to, to extract the most important things. Um, I, I'm largely just, I'm very hopeful about the uh, the the human spirit, and I just think there's always going to be people who want to do the laziest thing possible with education. There's always going to be students who end up paying tens of thousands of dollars a year at university and are incredibly committed to not learning. I do not know what to do with those people. I I think there will (laughs) always be people who who pursue education for its own sake. Uh, And there's, as long as we've been inventing things, people have been saying that those inventions are going to make us dumber. Like, Like Socrates on books, right? Uh, The guy thought books are going to make us all forget things. I've got a pretty good memory. Um, I read a lot as well. So I just, yeah, I'm, I'm largely uh, hopeful and inspired by, by the human spirit. And I think that no matter what on the long-term scale, that we will figure this out as educators. That's not my concern. My concern is the short-term scale, what the next five to 10 years look like when this stuff is still nascent. And, uh, and I'm certain that there are going to be instructors who uh, stick their feet or drag their feet, stick their head in the sand and want to pretend like the world doesn't have to change. And I, uh, I don't necessarily know that I agree with that. And I think that that is going to result in some students, uh, being in a situation where just using the model to cheat is substantially, uh, or very, very enticing. And a lot of them are going to do it. And I think as educators, there's a certain responsibility to, uh, to incentivize students to to not do that, I when I used to teach, I, I used to joke that ninety percent of education is deception, and you need to trick students into learning. And I think that's uh, that's going to be more true now than ever.
2: We are the most powerful tool in our possession, Chat GPT, to help us do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, if I if I may yeah. continue, um, part of the summer was I just put everything well, not everything, but a lot of types of assignments and things like that through Chat GPT asking ChatGPT to find ways around it. Uh, So depending on the level of the course, uh, the level of complexity, the level of expectation, so on perhaps preparedness, this is what I spend a lot of my time with like, hey, how's this helping in in assessment? How does it make it in designing better assignments? So I use it as a tool in a sense for, for my own benefit to think about how can I refine my pedagogy Understanding the amount resources that this uh, algorithm can tap into and uh, redesigning or sometimes deleting entire assignments because they're actually not at this stage, like at uh, this nascent stage, as you said, and uh, cannot be uh, trusted in a sense to accomplish the learning objectives of the course. In other cases, I encourage, in fact, mandate the students using Janet or using this. Matt is most report from what they're expected to as do in the field of business. So if they're going into um, brand management and so on. It's like hey, well that, this is what the funds are, this is what they're doing. I like to have some experience, and then the build into this build into assignments and reflection pieces in class oral in a sense, because I know uh Judge is excellent creating personal reflection as well with any detail if you know what chat knows it. That, that that has been my you can give all kinds of personal information if you can say it, if you can type it if you can show it perhaps as a chat can do it. and and that's what it was like what is my role as an educator then to show the students say, there are portions of the assignments that do require your own critical thinking. And how do you compare your own intelligence with the intelligence the answer that the machine including to include? it's interesting because there's two questions here that I think need to be separated you know as an educator the goal is to help students understand because that helps them flourish in their humanity there's the second and I think the lower, Hat that we need to wear a badge, which is the policeman. But it's a second thing, right? Making sure that students aren't cheating so that we can get grades, so that we can delineate between good and bad students, which help the workforce and so on. That's a secondary thing. It's, it's a necessary evil, but it's not the primary focus of education, right? The primary focus is to help students to flourish. And that means to use their minds to understand and think about problems. Uh, to understand the nature of good and bad and, and why cheating would be something that they ought not to do because it harms their flourishing. Um, so I mean, that's stuff that doesn't go away. Right, or that, that, that aspect, it doesn't, it's, it's almost, it doesn't care if there's this tool or that tool. Right? It's, right. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different question. These tools allow students to cheat easier. But if you educate students, Um, or have done the primary job, the secondary job, I think makes it a little bit easier. That said, there will be always students who are not educated, who do not respond to that education. We're all fallen teachers in some important sense. Um, So we need to to police people. Uh, But it's a different question. And to focus on the policing question, as if that was the primary question of education, I think it distorts the, the the focus of what education is supposed to be. So you know, I sometimes tell my students, I don't care about the grade. I, I don't mean it that way, but I also mean it that way. I don't actually care how it's got A or a B or C. I want to know that he understood the concept and has, has kind of worked deeper into that. And if he's cheated, I'm not as an educator. I'm really interested in finding out if he has or hasn't. I'm more really interested as in a policeman, which is one of the badges that I wear. But as an educator, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested only in is he flourishing in his understanding and maybe, and I think, also because his understanding should be to understand more of that is why that would be a bad thing to do. But I, I don't want to confuse the first and the second. I think that's easy to lose in this kind of conversation.
0: OK. Um, I'm sure there's more to be said there, but we are moving on to our next question. Um, so w- the next question is kind of a fun one. Um, this is from the audience. Is there a difference between simulating metacognition and real metacognition? Just because an AI can act as if it had metacognition, can it achieve the same results as real metacognition? So, and then there's another question. Is this a, and the last part is, is this a philosophical zombie situation? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, I think there's, yeah, there's potentially, I guess it, it, it all depends on how you frame it. Um, if if models were able to uh, show signs of metacognition by virtue of the fact that someone collected a bunch of human examples of metacognition, like people wrote out their chains of thought, people wrote out all their, their inner monologues or whatever. And then we trained on that and we got the model to, to appear, to do metacognition. I would just, yeah, that's, that's a helpful smoke and mirrors, but that's all it is. Uh, for me, I think I would only, the only, uh, Valuable metacognition in a model that would make me say that there's something fundamentally different happening is when you explicitly do not train for metacognition. I think the reason that a lot of people think that we're hitting on something real and and more fundamental with with uh, uh, with these models is that 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 babbling process, that self-supervised learning process, is like the most naive thing possible that you can do. And the fact that at the end you, you end up with models that know to, to think through logical syllogisms and they're like internal weights before they output things is evidence of, uh, of a rudimentary reasoning capability. And I do think there's, there's a difference there. I, I'm, uh, I'm certain that there's. That the more we study it, the more we're going to find differences between what, what the model's version of it is and what our version of it is, and that in having that difference, it, it will enlighten us more into what makes us more unique as humans. I think uh, historically the way, the things people thought would mean that the computer was thinking has, has changed a lot. And just something like the fact that the model can produce cogent English used to be the goal. And it used to be the case that once you got there, the computer was thinking. I don't think there's anyone around today who thinks that ChatGPT is thinking or at least not anyone who doesn't have tinfoil hats on i just i i don't think the model thinks and i don't i don't necessarily know that metacognition in the model um necessarily means that our own view of metacognition or the own type of metacognition we have is cheapened i think if anything it'll maybe draw that line a bit more clearly and we'll be able to see a bit more experimentally what's Different about the way we do it and the way the model does it and then that might give us insight into what makes us a bit more uniquely human yeah i know
2: and that, that's that's i agree with that i, I think uh, thinking is something that you know you're doing when you do it internally but when we look at other minds around us and i try to infer that these are also humans doing the same thing as i am I'm only gathering it based on some sort of empirical evidence of some sort. I, I see people blink and respond and they seem to do this or that. And I say that's similar to what I think I'm doing. But even then, I can't be certain, you know, this is the Cartesian problem of solipsism. I'm not entirely sure that you are thinking. I only think likely based upon certain types of analogies. And then the questions have always been if if machines seem to be able to do those sorts of things, you can never Get inside the machine to say, "Oh, I'm thinking its thoughts." You, you can't do that. You can think your thoughts. Uh, so certainty is a bar you don't have for that. But the analogy questions are always the interesting ones. And I don't know, Doctor Eastman. Do you guys still use Serrell's Chinese box? Is mm-hmm. uh, that, yeah. that that is is relevant for you guys. Is that still there? Is that there's an upgraded version of that now? Or
1: yeah, I think yeah the the. Yeah. Chinese box or like the Chinese room is the the thought experiment where like the papers get slid under the door. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of people find that to be, uh, still a very helpful analogy to understanding what the models can and can't do. Um, there's
0: going to be one more question for you. Um, can AI create art?
1: Yeah, I think (laughs) like if I could rearrange the question, uh, do you think a camera makes art, uh, like on its own no can a person with a camera make art of course uh, does does a model make art no none of the none well none of the models currently that exist nothing they, they can produce very beautiful pictures none of them make art can a person using that model make art that seems kind of self-evident to me um and i realize that's a bit of a controversial opinion among some people but i i don't know the parallels to photography are just incredibly clear to me the the person wielding the tool has a picture in their mind's eye of what they're trying to achieve they attempt to achieve it they get multiple different samples they curate those samples until they get the final perfect one and then maybe they tweak it a little bit that's the whole process of photography that's the whole process of creating ai art i think there's a lot of parallels and i definitely think that photographers are uh, engaging in the artistic process i don't think models themselves will ever engage in the artistic process until it, and if it's ever possible to instill a sense of emotional capability in models, because I think the artistic process requires a lot of that um, and, and more social understanding and emotional intelligence than models have. And then it, to me that it seems possible for models to ever have, but, you know, the future is going to be weird. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't think the model on its own can make art No, but I think people with it definitely can.
0: Uh, I guess we're gonna do, we're gonna jump into a little bit of the business work questions because we haven't touched too much on that yet and people have questions on that. So um, one of the questions I, I have here is, I'm gonna, hold on. Yeah, we'll just go with this one. There's a few here. What jobs will AI take, take on in the near future? What fields do you think AI should be utilized by? Um, and he, it gives some examples, artistic creative fields versus scientific fields, what?
1: Yeah. I think if there's a, if there are roles that currently can be like, I think, yeah, there there are two level, two different flavors of, of job displacement that I see being possible. The one is that you give a person the model access to, to these powerful models and those people are, you know, 10 times more efficient. And so you don't need to have their nine peers hired anymore. Um, there's, there's this argument I'm. Uh, Not quite sure that I think our our economic uh, structure incentivizes, will incentivize just having all nine of those people be 10X rather than just having the one person be 10X and then fire a bunch of people um, personally. But that's, yeah, I think kind of dependent upon economic systems. The second type of job disruption of just like plug and play uh, completely replaces the role. If there are roles where that is possible, then I would argue that those roles are not life-giving. And those are things that probably ought to be replaced. And so there are things like, oh, BuzzFeed, you know, is using the model now to, to write a bunch of its articles and isn't this bad? You know, these these creative writers are, are being put out of jobs. It's like, is how much human flourishing do you actually get writing your 12th different variation of which Disney princess are you? Like it's that seems like the exact kind of thing you make the computer <laughs> do. And call centers are the perfect example. I don't, I've I've known many people who've worked in call centers. They all describe it as as a hell. And having a model just sit there in a call center and take these abuse from people and just respond very politely strikes me like a, a good use of the model. I, I also do think that there's probably something, there's something that, that feels like kind of capital J just about the fact that as, as programmers, we are making these models that are incredibly good at programming. And so some of the people whose jobs are gonna be first on the chopping block are ours. I do think that's kind of good. I do think there's there's something like if we have this strength of conviction that this is something that will benefit humanity, we have to put our money where our mouth is. And I'm not worried about the model taking my job. If, if the model ever gets to the point where it's so capable that it can do everything I do at work, then I should probably be doing other things with my time to find fulfillment. Okay. All
0: right. Thank you. We're going to move on to the... Um next question here uh this is just to clarify what was said at the beginning um someone wants clarification the moral guidelines of what is and isn't presented is determined during the uh expensive training process correct do you think that the model do you think that a business competition model will help regulate this or will government intervention intervention always be necessary
1: um i think i would i would probably argue for oversight of some capacity being always necessary whether that comes from like a government group or or if it's you know a civilian volunteer group or something like this i i think yeah that just trying to think that we can tune the business incentives in such a way as to bias these uh, large companies to to only be making models that are are vaguely uh, what we want with with a sort of vague sense of human preference is something that strikes me like a, a very a potentially very dangerous um, balancing act. Just because you stray a little bit, and the consequences become quite severe. Uh, and so, I think for that reason, I do think there ought to always be some sort of oversight, um, independent, independently by by a collection of humans, whether that's uh, you know government level or or something else. Okay.
0: Um, there is a few more here. Um. That we have, one of the first ones I have is um, they're they're curious. Can GP uh, or the models that do more the vocal can the can I assume that my voice or all voices can now be expressed and or manipulated? Yeah, so that is yeah. a correct
1: assumption. Okay, uh, right. the models the models can clone your voice to an incredibly high degree of fidelity with with very minimal uh, samples it's, it's kind of spooky. Um, there are, are reasons that a lot of the leading companies who have built these things have not released them. Uh, we're still very much grappling with the idea of how do we deploy these things ethically. Um, and yeah, I'm largely on the team that we ought not deploy these things, that, that this it's important to know that this technology is possible, but that having a, uh, if, if I believe that, that my goal is to ensure that AI benefits broadly all of humanity, then I don't think making a cool tool that makes it a, incredibly easy for scammers to rip off your grandma is a good idea. Right, yeah.
2: That said, it could be used selectively, ethically, right? If you're trying to deceive your neighbor, right? In a, in a good sense, right? If you're in a military situation and you wanna communicate with the enemy or leave the enemy astray by imagining your, on their side, and you're not. You could use these things selectively to kind of you know, manipulate them in a just way, I suppose. But again, it's it's kind of the Pandora's box. Once so you take it out of the box, and it's it's not going to go back probably too too quickly. So it's more about not could it be used potentially for a just deception of some sort, but will it be likely to use that way? Likely not. Yeah, it's dangerous. So this is where I'm. Uh, even as a business professor, I mean, knowing this dangerous understanding that markets are at times slow in reaction, they are reactive at times rather than proactive. Perhaps it's the role of government to come up with those proactive guidelines and perhaps some That is, yes, once that is out, that, that technology, those technology technologies out in the market, it's not until the first. Lawsuit or a first harm, and so on, that uh, the markets react and adjust and self regulate. But the genie is out of the bottle already, so that's that's the problem with this kind of powerful technology. Uh, and to, to, to my own surprise, I do think that proactive regulation, in the sense giving principles and guidelines on what kinds of technology. No, not so just like technology, the kind of uses. What are the limitations? That, the kind of things. Imagine, on the other hand, well, it's not GPT, but there could be other, could be competitors, not necessarily from the most friendly countries that would allow for someone to build a bomb in their in their basement, and that's not good either. So that is the good case for the international for the regulation, just like we do regulate the international waters and and uh, weapons in space.
1: One thing I think I, I should mention, though, uh, given how uh, maybe fearful I just was, was that it, it is entirely possible to always know if audio being generated is generated by an AI. It that with text, I fundamentally believe that's not possible, um, and because I can think of a, a billion ways to get around those those kind of detectors. But with things like audio and images, it is they're mathematically possible if you put in the extra work to ensure that. That you can tell with a very high degree of certainty, basically a perfect degree of certainty, that this is generated by a model or this is generated by a person, um, and so yeah, I think it's the, the again back on this like whole regulating body thing. Um, just just because it is technically possible doesn't mean the companies are going to do it. And I do think it's probably a good thing for it to be a law that if you're if you're releasing models that can clone voices, they should watermark that. It should be it should be something that you can determine that this is detected by. or or created by a uh, a model. And then, you know, maybe phone companies then have to use those watermarks to alert your grandma that this is probably a scam or whatever it is. But yeah, I just think exactly expecting like the companies to do it on their own is no, they're, they're too reactive for that. And, uh, it's cheaper to not do it. So they won't. Um, and this is
0: just my own question now that you're saying that. So do you so in your mind, an international kind of body is kind of where we're moving towards? Or is it going to be each nation is going to decide on its own? Like, what do you, like, I guess as a person, maybe, maybe that's too premature. You're not sure where we're going to go with that. But is that kind of where it seems like the politics on this are going?
1: Yeah, these are these are the kinds of questions. We've hired more people with uh, PhDs in like ethics or global policy or, or politics than we have people with PhDs in math recently. Um, And that's specifically because we these are hard questions and these are the kinds of questions that I'm very glad that the STEM PhDs don't have to answer, uh, because I'm certain we would come up with a really dumb solution and that having the people who spent their lives studying politics and and who have learned the lessons uh, from things like regulation of of nuclear technology or regulations of of weapons um, can lend some of that insight. I'm not sure if, if the nation level is the correct answer or if something like the UN is the correct answer. My guess would be it's probably the best thing as a, as a little mix of both, but. Um,
0: and then there's just a couple more questions here. Um, so one of the questions was, do you believe that like writing as a career journalism, website information, et cetera, um, Will become eventually obsolete, or is already obsolete with AI writing systems? Do you think that that is a true statement? Or all the li- no. all the lit majors are just like listen up?
1: <laughs> uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think in a in a world of mass production, uh, handmade bowls or like artisanal bowls are more valuable, not less. And I think that as humans. Uh, one of the main reasons we read, you know, there, there are a couple of reasons we read. One is just to get access to information. And for things like that, yeah, maybe having the model right, that makes sense. But another reason we read is for human connection. Um, and that is something where I think reading a person's essays that, that, you know, individual essayists, that individual journalists, uh, that some of these reporters and things like this are always going to be things that as a society we value. And if anything, proliferation of automated text might make us value the curated human text more.
0: Okay. Uh, you,
2: I think time will tell how much the industry would shrink in a sense, what has been happening to most media companies before the invention of chatGPT and other models like that has been always on the shaky ground. I think it seems to me as a style priorities are shifting from the, the word into more video and, and, and others. And we spend a lot more time not reading, not actually valuing no matter text or quality. Of reading. So it's, I think every American now on average reads about what 1.8 or 2.7 books a year so in general, let's just be, and not just a very normal you can uh, move that up, but um, just seem there will be this, I would say the process of readjustment. I do agree that good journalism will remain and uh, be involved, but they'll be like a niche market in a sense. Um, so I think a lot of business analysts are on the, on the edge about making concrete predictions about how, i have heard reports from McKinsey and all that, this might go this way, however, it depends. So I'll give you a true professorial answer, all it will depend. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> right. Well, the other thing is, was interesting, um, when the first automated line uh, was uh, introduced robotics and all that building cars in, in Detroit, uh, one of the union leaders was asked whether he's concerned that this will be the end of the union, it will be end of labor and all that. And uh, I can't remember his name, but he was quoted saying, like, no, nope, I don't care a bit. None of these robots can actually drive any of those cars that I've produced. What I produced. Point being is that it is it might be to a detriment to all us of. Getting rid of journalists, getting rid of the people who are in the uh, call centers and all the other things, um, because the machines that are replacing them are not consumers. They don't have households. They don't have well, for the most part, they don't even have a well, for the most part much of a physical space anyway. So then I think it's it's redefining the world of economics. It's like To what extent do do we automate everything to the point that we don't have any consumers who actually be willing to pay for all of those things? And the rich people are not going to cut it. That is, as you said, if some of the programmers go away and there's one programmer that makes 10 times the amount of money, the challenge is there's only a limited amount of each person can consume, no matter what the amount that they actually earn so there's going to be serious serious disruptions potentially if if, if there is going to be cascade event of this these technologies disrupting various industries at the same time that's uh, that's that's what gives me a bit of a yeah, reason for concern about how this might play out how fast will people learn to do new things so my question back to you right is like if you're not doing this, what would you be doing that will be still learning? Perhaps you're the artistic kind and you like to involve in arts or something else. But what would that be that some others would like to be paid for?
1: Uh For me personally, I'd, I'd probably, uh, if I wasn't doing this job, I'd probably be in academia still, like probably a, uh, be considering or be continuing along the, the path of education. I just, I enjoy teaching. Um, it's probably the only thing I miss from academia here is is teaching. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be scratching that itch if it wasn't this. Um, and I think, yeah, teaching as a discipline strikes me as, as something that uh, the human demand for it is probably going to be evergreen.
0: Um, I think we are almost out of questions. Um, So we're getting close anyways. Um, There is probably just one more that I'd like to talk about. Um, And this is more about the verification of information. So one of the questions was, um, what kind of standards do you think need to be put in place to confirm or verify information? So I think, yeah, if we're now consuming a lot of information, and there's not a verification process or, you know, you, you can have Chachi we make a fake, you know, paper that's a journal article and, you know, fake the that it looks like it's something real. And like, how do we, how do we verify, I think is a concern, even as a, a student or in academia, but just in general as well.
1: Um, yeah, this is one of those things where I actually do think that that business incentives are probably the right way to tackle it rather than some kind of regulation or, or something like this. Um, I, I think people would be naturally biased towards models that are, are better at that, uh, yeah, the technical term is hallucination. So models that hallucinate less, uh, is something that I think people will be kind of, in, or businesses would be incentivized to create and people would enjoy more, uh, presumably. And I also think this, the problem of, of hallucinations of, of models saying incorrect facts is strikes me like a transient problem. Um, I've just by virtue of of the the role I have, I'm able to see some of the, the advancements in these things kind of earlier than the rest of the public. And I just think that, yeah, this hallucination problem thing that models will very soon be, uh, be far more truthful than your average person. Um, and that just cause now you can get them to write all kinds of fake papers and stuff. Doesn't mean that that's always going to be the case. And that, yeah, just, uh, individuals will naturally be, uh, prefer products produced by companies that hallucinate less and that seems to me to be the the correct way to probably try to uh, uh, control for that
0: this was great thank you um both of you for for being on the panel and also Dr. Berkman he had to go to teach a class <laughs> um, speaking of teaching so it's been so wonderful to have you and I, I we really appreciate you taking your time to uh, give us a you know a ground level look um, in a way. Um, so yeah, thank you so
1: much. Yeah, of course.
0: Thank you for listening to wisdom and wonder follow us wherever you get your podcasts, check back next week for more interesting content and engaging conversations and always stay curious.